Do you remember the day that you were saved? The day that God called you and brought you to life? I did a quick survey and asked our deacons this question this week. I'm happy to report that all of our deacons profess faith in Christ. Amen? (laughs) Here are some of the answers, and they'll go nameless. Some of you might just know which one's which, but I'll just go ahead and read these off real quick, okay? The first response was five-ish. How many of you would agree with five-ish? Going back to five, you're thinking, I was about five. And their mother led them to Christ. The next one, third grade. Third grade. And it was his teacher led him to Christ. The next one said fifth grade. And it was somebody in the church. It wasn't at this church. It was the church they grew up at. I think they moved here from far away. I'm giving you clues there, but... They're at VBS at church. So somebody that was working, serving in their church's VBS that summer led them to Christ. The next, 23 years old, led to Christ by a pastor. And then five years old, not five-ish, this one, no, it's five years old, and it was at their family devotions in their home. And then 30, 30 years old, they came to Christ, and they were led to Christ by a pastor. And then finally, seven years old by mother. Right? By mom. All different ages, different people, some in their homes, some outside of the home. Uh, Think back to when you put your faith in Christ. What was happening, what you were like, who spoke to you that time. The way I asked it of our deacons this week was, who got to reap the harvest? What I mean by that is, uh, some of us maybe heard the gospel many times before the time that we put our faith in Christ. And many people sowed seeds, right? And then somebody got to reap the harvest. Uh, When I was 16 years old, that's when I put my faith in Christ. I was raised in the church. My grandfather was a pastor, my dad's dad, and he's a church planner in different states around the country. And so I'd heard the gospel many, many, many times. Uh, When I was five years old, I know that I was five, um, I, are, for whatever reason, our church practiced that once, once you prayed the prayer, you could take communion. And so I learned that I had to pray a prayer to get the juice. My five-year-old mind, okay? And what made it harder, sympathize with me, my mom was the one who put the grape juice in the cups at home in our kitchen. So in my five-year-old little mind, watching my mom get all the grape juice out, and we only had grape juice during communion time. And she'd squirt the grape juice in all those little cups. And we'd take them to church, and I wanted some grape juice. And and she wanted me to respect the Lord's Supper. So I, I wasn't allowed to just drink the grape juice that was left over. <laughs> so if I wanted grape juice, I had to do what I had to do. You know what I'm saying, don't you? So I learned, and I figured it out, and I prayed the prayer, and I got myself some grape juice. All right? As you can imagine, uh, my life did not change (laughs) after that. My heart did not change after that. And as I grew and got older into my later teenage years, the gospel just became more and more foolish to me. As I began to think about it and as I began to think about church and what people were doing, and I didn't want to have anything to do with it. It was foolishness to me, which is what the Bible says it is to the lost, right? It's foolishness. 
So between my junior and senior year of high school, my parents strongly, strongly encouraged me to go to camp. And so under their strong encouragement, I went. And on Thursday night at that camp trip, the speaker, and it was one of those situations, those settings where at the end of the service, everybody close your eyes and bow your head. I'm going to ask you some questions and raise your hand if this is you, that kind of a setting, that kind of situation. And the question that was asked was, if you have not been convicted about anything all week long, if nothing that was said about anything all week long, if God hasn't picked your heart in any way, raise your hand. I'd never heard that question before at the end of a sermon. I've heard, do you want to be saved? Do you want to come forward? Do you want to do this? Do you want to do that? But never that question. But it was intriguing to me. And in my mind, this was not me raising a white flag to the Lord. This was me saying, I win. And I raised my hand up high in my pride. My counselor, who's probably about a 20-year-old college kid, um, and from a college I probably wouldn't send our kids to, <laughs> he said, let's go outside. I knew exactly what was, I gotcha, you guys are trying to get me. I knew exactly what they were trying to do. He took me outside. We sat on this bench area around some trees outside of this, this camp auditorium, and he begins to go through this gospel tract with me, one that I'd seen many times. I might have even been able to do a better job than him going through this tract. And about halfway through, I stopped him. I said, I know the rest of the story. You don't have to keep doing this. And I started giving him the litany of all the reasons he should leave me alone. My grandpa's a pastor. My dad's a deacon. They lead the music and the worship and church all the time. We've been going to church all the time. Our family, blah, 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 blah. Leave me alone. That was what I was saying. I was giving him all this religious talk. Leave me alone. What he could have done there is said, okay, this kid wants me to leave him alone. But he said to me, and I knew this, you know, language in this talk, he said, you know, God doesn't care who your grandpa is. God doesn't care who your dad is. And truth be told, yes, he does, right? God cares who our family is. But not as it relates to whether I'm saved or not, whether I'm his child or not. And again, I already knew that. But for some reason, and we're going to know what that is in a little bit here, something just clicked. And it was like the light bulb turned on. And I thought to myself, I have to quit running from God. And by this time, I had become, in my own heart, an atheist. As a teenager, I decided this is not true. Nothing of this is any good. I can't wait till I graduate. I'm out of here. But at that moment, I knew, and it says in the Psalms, the fool has said in his heart, there is no God. I knew that I've got to quit running from God. And I did. And I prayed genuinely, sincerely, for Christ to save me. And it changed. My life changed. I prayed about a hundred times that night, by the way, for Christ to save me. I think the first time took, right? But I wanted to follow God. All of a sudden... After all of that, I loved God. All of a sudden, I believed. All of a sudden, I wanted to follow Christ. I began to change. Prior to that moment, foolishness. Get me away from this. I was in the prison of my parents' religious home. But then all of a sudden, the glory of God. 
the beautiful gospel. What happened? This passage today, the first thing is going to say, consider your calling. Now last week we learned from 1 Corinthians chapter 1, that's where we're going to be again today. But last week from verses 18 to 25, we learned that the power of God is found in the message of the gospel. The holy creator God sending his son, Jesus Christ, to die on the cross to pay the penalty of our sin. And that when a sinner like you and like me puts our faith and trust in Christ alone for our salvation, we're forgiven. We're made right with God. We're given eternal life. The power of God is found in that message. We learned that last week from the Word of God. And since that is where the power of God is, we can be confident that our ministry, remember, will be effective, that it will make an impact, as long as we continue to make that gospel of Jesus Christ the central message of our disciple-making ministry. Now, this week, we're going to consider our calling and see the proof, the evidence of that mighty power, the mighty power of God being wrapped up in this simple message. Mighty power in a simple message. Okay, we thought about it philosophically, if you will, last week. This week we're going to see the proof of it in this next passage in 1 Corinthians, okay? So first, in this passage, Paul's going to point the Corinthian believers back to their own conversion. And we're going to think about ours, as we as he does. And then secondly, Paul is going to remind the Corinthians of his methodology, the way that he shared the message, and the simplicity of it, that led up to their conversion. With all of that, we're going to learn today what our salvation isn't, and what our salvation is, and also what evangelism isn't, and what evangelism is. Okay, so without further ado, let's look at the Word of God. This is 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 26, and we're going to read into chapter 2 through verse 5. It says, For consider your calling, brothers. Not many of you were wise according to worldly standards. Not many were powerful. Not many were of noble birth. But God chose what is foolish in the world to shame the wise. God chose what is weak in the world to shame the strong. God chose what is low and despised in the world, even things that are not, to bring to nothing things that are, so that no human being might boast in the presence of God. And because of him, you are in Christ Jesus who became to us wisdom from God, righteousness and sanctification and redemption, so that as it is written, let the one who boasts, boast in the Lord. And I, when I came to you, brothers, did not come proclaiming to you the testimony of God with lofty speech or wisdom, for I decided to know nothing among you except Jesus Christ and him crucified. And I was with you in weakness and in fear and much trembling. And my speech and my message were not in plausible words of wisdom, but in demonstration of the Spirit and of power, so that your faith might not rest in the wisdom of men, but in the power of God. Let's pray. Father, we thank you that you have shared this power with us, that you have done this miracle 
of conversion, of, of giving dead people life in Christ. Thank you for our salvation. And God, I pray as we look at this message today, as we look at this passage, that you would help us to uh, just continually have a greater understanding of exactly what you did and exactly what you are doing and how you intend to use us to continue the work of bringing people to yourself. And I pray that we would be on board with that. God, help us to serve you, to love you, and to love others, to glorify your name. And we pray this in Christ's name. Amen. So this idea of calling, the first phrase, consider your calling. This is God giving us that moment when God calls us, when he gives us salvation. So how could we think about this? And the best thing I could think of at the time, with your cell phone, here's the idea. The gospel, when you share the gospel, it's like the phone is... No way. That was perfect. It's like the phone is ringing. (laughs) That's great. The phone is ringing. Okay, but how many of you like to put your cell phone on silent? Okay, your cell phone, pretend your cell phone is on silent. And the person calls you, and it's in your purse, it's in your wallet, you have no idea. And then later on, when you get your phone out to see what time it is, or to call somebody else, you look at the number, and you do a really good job of keeping all your contacts up to date on your phone. So you see this number, and you don't know who it is. What do you do with that? Oh, I better call him back. No! You get rid of that thing. That's just a junk call, right? That's what it's like for a person who's dead in their trespasses and sins. We might share the gospel with them, and at that time, if God has not called them to life right there, it's like their ringer's on silent, and it just seems like a junk call. But, have you ever had an appointment for a phone call? Where you know at like 2 o'clock in the afternoon on Friday, this it's an important phone call, and you know it's coming. you got it in your calendar. At like 1.30, you're sitting at your, your desk or at your table just looking at your phone because you're ready. And then all of a sudden, it's like it startles you, even though you knew it was coming at 2, right? The phone rings, and you have it on as loud as it can get. The contact name comes up. And, and do you wait for it to ring five times? No. As soon as that thing goes, and, and the person doesn't even hear the phone ring on their end, you, you're answering, right? That's kind of like what it is when you share the gospel with a person or when somebody shared the gospel with you and God called you. At that moment, somebody shared the gospel with you and your eyes were opened and your ears were opened. You were no longer deaf. You could hear. No more silence. Your heart that was stone began to beat and something that was dead was miraculously brought to life. That's what happened when we were called. Does that make sense? What an amazing thing. God did a miracle when I got saved. God did a miracle when you get, when you got saved. Because dead things don't just live. So does God do miracles today? Yeah. He did when I got saved. That was a great miracle. That's not the direction I was headed. (laughs) He says, consider your calling, brothers. Not many of you were wise according to worldly standards. Not many were powerful 
Not many were of noble birth. If you think about it, if anything, these characteristics would seem to make it harder for a person to enter into the kingdom of God. Remember what Mark 10.25 says? It's easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich person to enter the kingdom of God. Uh, what was I doing with that counselor when he was trying to tell me that I needed to put my faith in Christ? I started giving, giving him my litany of my noble birth in the kingdom of heaven because my grandpa was a pastor. And I was giving him my wisdom of religious gobbledygook. <laughs> There's a good word for you. That's not in my notes. And all that kind of, right? I, I try to give him all that stuff. And if I rely on all of those things, even in our kingdom of God mentality, even in religious mentality, uh, wisdom, uh, powerfulness, having strength and, and uh, prominence in community, having noble birth, all of those things seem to make it hard. And in reality, if we look at ourselves, church, how many of us were that way in the world's eyes? In the world's eyes. There are no news cameras here today because you're here today. Praise God for that. But none of us are that way. None of us are those kind of people. We're not special. Consider your calling. Where were you when God called you? Verse 27 says, But God chose what is foolish in the world to shame the wise. God chose what is weak in the world to shame the strong. I think of John the Baptist. In his animal skins and eating his locust and wild honey and just living out there by the the river Jordan, and and yet, what did Christ say about him? Nobody has been greater than this man. We flip these things upside down, don't we? God chose what is low and despised in the world. And that word despised has this idea of being considered as nothing, and continually so. So that when a person would look at you, they'd say, you were nothing. And you're nothing. And you're going to be nothing. Forever. That kind of a mentality towards you. That's nice, isn't it? But it gets worse. Even things that are not. And this phraseology in the Greek would have been the highest of insults to these people. It was as if we were saying, you're a nobody. You don't even exist. It's to them, and I think in us, for us as Americans and just Western culture with the idea of social media... When somebody posts something to social media, what might they look at their uh, Facebook or their Instagram status over and over and over for to see if people are liking or now loving or laughing at whatever their status was, right? And in their culture, they wanted to be known. They wanted to be appreciated. They wanted to be lifted up and magnified. So to say to them, you're a nobody was the highest of insults. But God chose what is low and despised, and even things that are not, to bring to nothing things that are. So that, verse 29 says, no human being might boast in the presence of God. Remember Ephesians 2, 8 and 9, for by grace you are saved through faith. And this is not your doing. It's the gift of God. And that gift goes back to faith. The faith that you have is a gift from God, not a result of your works, so that no one can boast. 
This sounds ridiculous to us, but could you imagine a person getting to heaven and they arrive and they think, I've arrived. Hey, everybody, look what I did. God, aren't you lucky I'm here? Is that how that's going to be? No, there's no boasting before the Lord. None of it is of our doing. It is all of the grace of God. So these are all things that our salvation is not in these verses. And here's some of what salvation is. Verse 30 says, And because of him, remember it's God's doing, it's God's grace, because of him you are in Christ Jesus. And then it says here in these next words what it means to be in Christ Jesus, what it does, what it accomplishes for us. Because it says in Christ Jesus who became to us these four things, wisdom from God, righteousness, sanctification, and redemption. And again, so that as it is written, let the one who boasts, boast only in the Lord. So these four things, wisdom. Think about what we have versus what the world has. Wisdom. We know and believe the gospel. Does that give us wisdom? Absolutely. We know some amazing things about ourselves and we know some amazing things about God and our life and our, our heart and our perspective, our knowledge changes. Because we know and have the gospel. Where the world is always rushing headlong into this pursuit of personal glory. Achieving and becoming all that they have. Realizing their potential. And when we put that through the grid of the gospel, how far does that get us? And the answer is not very far. Nothing eternal. And it's all going to be destroyed anyways. Uh, We have wisdom in that. We have the word of God. And when God uh, quickened us, when he made us alive, he gave us the spirit. And we can look at the word of God and understand it. And know what it means and see how our life either matches up or doesn't match up with what it says. And, And then we have grace to be able to follow him. Versus the world that has to rely on its own tainted experiences. Well, this worked before. I'll try it again. That's the best they've got. And by the way, Christian, don't rely on that. We have something far better than that. Uh, Experiences can lie to us. And then third, we can live for eternity. We know there's something beyond our death. We have life eternal. And so when we make decisions day by day by day in our life, we're thinking about more than tomorrow. We're thinking about more than 10 years from now. We're thinking more about our retirement We're thinking about eternity. And we know that there is a creator who is eternal, who made us and owns us and keeps us. That changes how we think. And it changes how we live. John MacArthur wrote this. He he wrote, A simple, uneducated, untalented, and clumsy believer who has trusted in Jesus Christ as Savior and who faithfully and humbly follows their Lord is immeasurably wiser than the brilliant Ph.D. who scoffs at the gospel. Are you okay being called a simple, uneducated, untalented, and clumsy believer? Yeah, let's be okay with that. Let's not be, you know, ignorant on purpose. (laughs) But he says here, and it's true, immeasurably wiser than the brilliant Ph.D. who scoffs at the gospel. He wrote, the simple believer knows forgiveness, knows love, knows grace, knows life, knows hope. God's word. He knows God himself. He can see eternity. 
while the unbelieving Ph.D., on the other hand, knows nothing beyond his books, his own mind, and his own experience. He sees nothing beyond this life, and he cannot be considered anything but foolish. The wisdom of the world, foolishness, and the foolishness of God. Remember last week, as if there were such a thing, the foolishness of God immeasurably wiser than anything this world can put up against it. Amen? Righteousness. Christ is righteousness for us. Romans 4, 5 says, To the one who does not work but believes in him who justifies the ungodly, his faith is counted, counted, it's an accounting term, as righteousness. Before Christ, if you look at my account of goodness, there was nothing there. But I put my faith and trust in Christ and God graciously gives me the righteousness that has been accomplished by Christ. So that when you look at my account, it's all filled up. Not any room left to fill because the righteousness of Christ is there. It's finished. Amen? Christ is for us our sanctification. And remember, sanctification has three parts. There's the initial sanctification when we, when we get saved where we're set apart We're baptized into the body of Christ by the Holy Spirit. We're dead to our sin. We are alive to Christ. That sometimes is called positional sanctification. And then there's progressive sanctification. I'm going to be made to be just like him, but for now I'm getting there incrementally, bit by bit by bit. 2 Corinthians 3.18. And I'm going to read Philippians 3. See, this is a both and. This is part of it is God does this work to you and it just happens because God's doing it because he's gracious to us. And there's part of it that says, you better get after this. <laughs> okay? The first one, 2 Corinthians 3.18. We all, believers, with unveiled face, nothing's covering our sight anymore. We behold the glory of the Lord. And because of that, we're being transformed into the same image, the image of Christ, from one degree of glory to another. Progressive change, progressive sanctification. And it says, this comes from the Lord, who is the Spirit. And then Philippians 3, 13 and 14, you might remember these verses. Brothers, I do not consider that I have made it my own. Paul said, one thing I do, forgetting what lies behind and straining forward to what lies ahead. He's getting after it. Straining forward to what lies ahead. I press on toward the goal for the prize of the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. In that passage, Paul calls Jesus Christ the prize of the upward call. You know, the Bible says we're going to get rewards and crowns and stuff like that. You know what Paul wanted more than any of that? Jesus. That's what he wanted to get after. So Christ is for us our sanctification. And the final part of that is when we're perfected. Philippians 1.6 says, says, I'm sure of this, that he who began a good work in you will bring it to completion. God promises, I saved you, and I'm going to make you perfect. As much as you know I saved you, your perfection's coming. Done deal. It's happening. And then finally, it says that Christ is for us our redemption. Remember, we were in bondage to sin. We're slaves. We were not able to do what was right. But Christ gave himself as our Ransom to purchase us from that bondage. Mark 10.45 says, For even the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve. And in what way? To give his life as a ransom for many. So liberty for the Christian, freedom for the Christian, is not 
sin, sin, sin as much as I want to because Christ died for me. Freedom means I used to not be able to do anything good for any good reason. Now I have freedom to. I'm able to do what gives life and what glorifies God. That is our freedom that was purchased for us by Christ. This is what salvation is. And now we're going to move over to chapter 2 here and think about the message preached, the message proclaimed. Paul says, And I, when I came to you, brothers, I, I did not come proclaiming to you the testimony of God with lofty speech or wisdom. So instead, negatively here, Paul says, I didn't come to you to impress you with lofty speech or wisdom. I didn't come to make you think I was amazing. The positive part here is that I came to you to proclaim the testimony of the Lord. That's what I came to do. I decided to know nothing among you except Jesus Christ and him crucified. Remember last week, we talked a little bit about when we share the gospel with somebody and they start asking us questions, which is totally fine, right? But sometimes those questions are questions that are purposed to get us off into conversations about things that are the wisdom of the world. And if we enter into that arena and just start trying to win arguments there, if it gets political or something like that, we're not going to win anything there. Because the wisdom of the world is foolishness, right? Paul says, I came to preach nothing but Christ and him crucified. So go back to the gospel. Go back to the gospel in your efforts. And he says, I was with you in weakness. But what did God say to Paul? In your weakness I am made strong. That means power, right? God's power. And in fear and in much trembling. Does that mean that Paul spoke to them scared of what they were going to think about him so he had fear? Or that he was worried about what they were going to do because he'd been, he'd been persecuted so many times so that, that caused his trembling? No. Fear here, the fear of God, a reverence for the message, the power of the message that was being preached, and trembling, thinking of the gravity of the situation. Remember who the Corinthians were known as. If you remember back, the Corinthians were known for being sinful. They were known for being uh, apart from any kind of morality. So much so that when people acted like that anywhere else in the empire, people said, you're behaving like a Corinthian. Can you imagine that? And so Paul goes to these people, and he looks at their life. He looks at the fruit of their hearts. And he says, people... Jesus Christ died for your sin. You can have forgiveness from all of this. That's the kind of fear and trembling he's talking about. The weight of the reality of where they were in their life was matched by a passion, a gravity, for their desperate need for the gospel. And let us be careful. Jesus didn't have to die less for me than he had to die for any Corinthian. Is there anybody where that passion wouldn't be warranted? Who doesn't desperately need Christ? And so we can, like Paul, go to people in fear and trembling when we share Christ with them. He says his speech, his message, they were not in plausible words of wisdom, but in demonstration of the Spirit and of power. Why can I get fired up about this message? Why would I plead with the person to put their faith in Christ? It's just a demonstration of the power that is contained within this message and what it would do for this person. 
Think about Jude, verse 23. He uses the phraseology there of snatching them up or catching them up out of the fire. The Bible uses that terminology. It's okay for us to think about the fact that the person we're sharing the gospel with is headed to hell. Headlong. And they need to hear about Christ. They need the gospel. And I can't argue them into heaven, but God can quicken them and put their eyes open and open up their ears and give them a heart of flesh and bring a dead thing to life. And he does it through the preaching of the gospel. And my love for him and my love for this person compels me to give them the very thing they need and to pray and ask God to do a miracle right then and there to bring that dead person to life. And so, yeah, we, we can be passionate about that message. That's the kind of fear and trembling that Paul is talking about here. So big picture as we look at this passage, what are some things that salvation isn't? What are some things that salvation is? Salvation isn't just our idea. It's not our logical conclusion. Well, as I reason, it makes sense to me that this is the way things are. Therefore, that's not what salvation is. Salvation is God's calling. Left to ourselves, we will never reason that way. God has to call us. Salvation isn't our accomplishment. Nobody's going to boast in themselves in heaven. But salvation is the work, the finished work of Jesus Christ. Salvation is not an exercise of our strength. We can't muscle ourselves into the kingdom. Salvation is, though, the power of God worked out in you. Salvation isn't passed down to us by our parents. It's not inherited that way. But salvation is gifted to us by our Heavenly Father. Salvation is not a pat on the back of a wonderful person realizing their full potential and having a positive self-image. That isn't salvation. Salvation is the only hope for an inadequate, sinful wretch like me. And listen, salvation isn't sought after by the world. It's not. But what salvation is, is desperately needed by the world. And that's why we go. That's why God commanded us to go. Sharing the gospel is something that we can do. Sometimes it falls into our lap and somebody just comes to us and asks us, and that's a wonderful moment. But more often than not, maybe like 99% of the time, we have to do this on purpose. Something we have to be intentional about to take the gospel to the lost. Now, evangelism. And we want to say it like this. What successful evangelism isn't and what successful evangelism is, okay? Successful evangelism isn't impressing people. Say, oh man, that person's going to get saved because I totally, totally whooped them in that argument. They're going to get saved. And they think I am really intelligent. That's not successful evangelism. Successful evangelism is obeying God and sharing the message. And that's so important. Sometimes we don't share the gospel because we don't think we're going to be able to answer their questions. I might lose the argument, 
But think about this now. Think biblically on this. A person who's lost, who's exercising the wisdom of the world, they're always going to think they beat you in the argument. They just will. And if you only think you succeeded when a person puts their faith in Christ and agrees with you, then who did the miracle? Does that make sense? If you share the gospel with somebody and they say, you're a moron, and they tell you all the reasons why they think you're a moron and you have no answer for them, guess what? You succeeded! You shared the gospel with them! Because guess what God does with that? Right? Who spreads the seeds and others water? And God gives the increase. God used you to do a work in that person's heart. It's not about whether you convince them to make a choice. God does that. We have to be careful that we don't allow bad doctrine to keep us from obeying God. God's a miracle worker. And he's asked us to share the gospel. And when we do, we've obeyed, we've honored him, and God can do a great work. Uh, In that light, successful evangelism is not gaining a follower. This is not the church of Andy. It's not the church of Ralph or the church of Paul or the church of Dave or anybody else here. This is the church of Jesus Christ. So successful evangelism is just us following Jesus and doing what Jesus would do. Then we're successful. And successful evangelism is not just rote obedience. And what I mean by that is, well, I'm a Christian. We're supposed to share the gospel with people. Our church is having an event. I have this booklet. I guess I'll read it. (laughs) We don't do that, right? Nobody does that. But we might have that kind of a mentality sometimes. Successful evangelism is not that. That's not what comes out of the mouth of a person who loves God and who loves people because God made them. If you love God enough, you're going to love his creation. Right? And you're going to love people regardless of what they look like, regardless of where they've come from, regardless of how much they have in their bank account, regardless of what church they used to go to or what church they used to hate. I love them. So here's the big picture. Think about this now. Jesus took on flesh. He lived on this earth, perfect, sinless. God allowed him to call disciples, follow me. And for some reason, they just did, didn't they? Maybe God did a miracle. And Jesus Christ died on the cross, and he paid for their sin, he paid for ours. And those disciples, when God turned the lights on, and when they came to life, boy, they grew in their love for him. They grew in their love for people, and guess what they did? They shared that simple message that contained the mighty power of God with others. And several of those times, God did a miracle And those people, and it says in Acts, as many as were called, they came to life. Then those people, they grew in their love for God, and they grew in their love for people, and they shared a simple message that contained the power of God, and as many as were called, came to life. And then those people, they grew in their love for God, and they loved people, and they shared a simple message that contained the power of God, and guess what happened? As many as were called... Came to life. 2,000 years, give or take. And then one day somebody came to you. They loved God and they loved people and they loved you. 
and they shared with you a simple message that contained the power of God. Remember Lazarus? He was dead. And Jesus stood outside of his tomb and said, Lazarus, come out. And what did Lazarus do? Yeah. He's all wrapped up. I don't know if he hopped out or how exactly that went down. But Lazarus came up out of that grave. And when somebody loved God and loved you and shared a simple message that contained the power of God, you know what God did? Andy, come out of the grave. And guess what you did? Guess what I did? We came to life. Paul, come out of the grave. Jessica, come out of the grave. William, get out of the grave. Come to life. Be saved. God did it. Here we are. And unless Jesus comes back today, there's more people that he's calling to himself. And guess who he wants to use to love those people and to share that simple message that contains the power of God. Christ is going to build the kingdom. The gates of hell are not going to prevail against it. be sweet if he keeps doing it here. That'd be awesome. I want to be a part of that. 2 Corinthians chapter 5, 16 through 20 says this, and then we're done. From now on, now that you're a Christian, from now on we regard no one according to the flesh. We don't see people the way the world sees people anymore. Even though we once regarded Christ according to the flesh, we regard him this way no longer. Therefore, if anyone's in Christ, he's a new creation. The old has passed away. Behold, the new has come. All this is from God. It's his miracle. Who through Christ reconciled us to himself and gave us the ministry of reconciliation. That is, in Christ, God was reconciling the world to himself, not counting their trespasses against them, and entrusting to us, the church, the message of reconciliation. This is the gospel message. Therefore, we are ambassadors for Christ. God making his appeal through us. And here's the appeal that we make. This is what we say. We implore you. There's that power. There's that passion, the desire. We implore you, on behalf of Christ, be reconciled to God. May this message of appeal always be on the front of our minds when we see people the way God sees people and on the tips of our tongues. So we can faithfully honor him, obey him, and love people. And praise God when any one of them is called up out of the grave and becomes a follower of Christ. Let's pray. God, thank you.
I thank you that that 20-year-old college kid who was probably racking up the debt, making silly mistakes in his life as a young man, that he spoke to me. A kid who had the gospel all over the place around me and yet hated you and hated the church. God, thank you for raising my dead soul to life. And God, I thank you for every single person in this room who knows you as their Savior. Thank you for the miracle that you did in their life. And God, if there's anybody here who has not received you by faith, who has not repented and put their faith and trust in Jesus Christ and his shed blood on the cross, God, I pray that you would do a miracle even right now to bring them to faith. And then, God, I pray that you would give us a burning passion and desire as a church, as First Baptist Church, to love people, to love the lost, and to passionately take the gospel to them, and then praise you as you work your power out in their lives to make them yours. God, help us to be faithful to you in that. And I pray this in Christ's name. Amen.